is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. It's the basis of the sermon here at the First Free Methodist Church on December 31, 2023. It's the concluding message in our series called Extraordinary Life, which explores how God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. This passage of scripture is uh, following the visitation of the the Magi, is the best way to pronounce that. Magi is what people commonly say. The Magi is Probably, again, the best pronunciation I may find to myself even <laughs> correcting myself as I go through the podcast. We'll see how I do. We begin at verse 13 uh, with these words from Matthew's Gospels. Now, when they had gone, they being the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened so that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged and sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all in its vicinity who were two years old or under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. As this passage of scripture opens, uh, we find ourselves uh, deep in a a chronology of events, both in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel surrounding the birth of Jesus. Just in verse 13 alone, we read these words, so that when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So let's just start with that verse. As I mentioned, this verse unfolds after the visitation of the Magi they have left. And you remember what their journey has been. They saw a star appear to them. They traveled to uh, Israel, Palestine. They went to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, who then took took them to Herod. Herod asked what they were there for. They explained. They got the directions they needed from the religious leaders to go to Bethlehem. So let's just put all this in some chronological order. So Jesus is born, and when Jesus is born, there is a star that appears in the sky that the Magi see from Persia. When they see the star, they recognize its significance, and they set out on a journey that would bring them ultimately to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. So they trek all the way across Mesopotamia to get to Jerusalem, which is not a direct route. It's a very indirect route. Uh, Jerusalem practically lies to their west, but in order to get there, they have to travel to the north and northwest and kind of go around in almost a half circle to get to actually where Jerusalem is. This journey they take is often called the Fertile Crescent. It's the, the part of Mesopotamia 
that surrounds the Arabian Desert, uh, which is untraversable, at least in the ancient world it was. So the Magi get to Jerusalem. They talk to Herod and the religious leaders. They find out Jesus is to be born in Bethlehem. They journey down the road to Bethlehem, and there they find Mary and Joseph along with Jesus. Jesus is no longer a newborn by the time they arrive. Uh, he is probably a toddler by the time they arrive. And so in the message that we read in this text is once the, the Magi have left Bethlehem and have returned to Persia without going back to Jerusalem to speak with Herod again, uh, then Joseph receives his second vision. Remember his first vision in Matthew's gospel was about taking Mary as his wife. The second vision now is about how he's to flee and take the child, as Matthew calls him here, and his mother to Egypt. And this all happened in a dream for him, exactly as it had happened the first time. The command of the angel to him is to get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So the get up part is in the imperative mood in the Greek language. It, it's the mood of command, of direct instruction. It's urgent. It, don't wait. And so the text tells us that he that he's supposed to take the child and the mother and notice the sequencing of the names and also notice the exclusion of himself, Joseph. The angel speaks to him, but he's not mentioned in the vision. He's simply instructed to take the child and his mother. The child comes first, the mother second. And they're to go to Egypt. Now, Egypt is a place where there's a large community of Jews. And so they would be very well established in a community like Egypt. They'd be able to find a way of life within their own kind of culture in that space and time. But most importantly about Egypt is it's out of the reach of Herod the Great. It's not within the area he rules over. And so they would be able to find safe harbor there. They're to stay there until... He's told until Joseph is told to come back. So there's this uncertainty about the duration that they're going to be there. And then finally, Joseph learns why. The angel says that Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, the key passageway here um, is important. It's been one that's stuck with me now for almost 30 years in ministry. And it's this, that God's power is quiet, powerful, and most important, it is defiant. I remember hearing a sermon a number of years ago given to me by one of the uh, people who um, uh, was a, a mentor to me. His name was Bob Pearson. He was a, at that time already a retired United Methodist pastor, and he gave me a cassette tape of this sermon. I, I wish for the life of me I could remember who it was from, and it was about Christmas, and the sermon was about Christ as the defiant light. So uh, there are so many forces at work in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel that would make this life of Jesus coming into the world, this birth of Jesus, absolutely impossible. And this is a wonderful episode that highlights that. Everything is conspiring here against the birth of Jesus. Here is Jesus being born as a singular and small thing, but kings and empires try to put it out, try to extinguish that light, and they're unable to do so. So oftentimes we think of, you know, God's power being manifest in these great cataclysmic and, you know, um, huge uh, epic signs. Uh, 
But what we see in the birth narrative of Jesus is this kind of quiet, rumbling power of God that's at work in a very defiant sort of way that no matter what authorities or powers or rulers or kingdoms try to dish out to try to stop the light of God coming into the world in Jesus, they're unable to. It's important truth for us. We have to sit with this. This is why it's a key passageway for us, that there's no obstacle, there's no challenge, there's no situation in our life that can stop the steady and defiant Christ from being made known to us. Nothing can get in the way of that. It's so important for us to be mindful of fact that, as the Apostle Paul tells us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We turn to verses 14 and 15 and hear of Joseph's obedience to the vision. In verse 14, it tells us, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother, and while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod, and this happened so that what was spoken through the Lord, through the prophet, would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. As with the other two visions Joseph had, uh, this one, and then the one that is the one that came first, this is the second, and the one that will come third, he obeys immediately. It tells us in verse 14 that Joseph got up from the vision, took the child and his mother, and here's the key part, while it was still night. He didn't wait till the morning. He didn't wait till the next day. He didn't wait till next week. He immediately did as he was instructed to do. In very much the same way, he did what he was instructed to do in his first vision when he was told by the angel to take Mary as his wife. So they left while it was night, and Joseph took the child and his mother. Notice the same sequencing of names took the child and his mother. So everything orbits around the child. Even the mother is not named here. Mary is not named in this particular section of scripture. It just says his mother. So Mary's identity is in relationship to the child who is Jesus. And they departed for Egypt. Now they remained there until the death of Herod. Now there are quite a few Herods uh, around at the end of the first century BCE and the first century CE. So uh, which Herod are we talking about here? This is Herod the Great. And so uh, we'll talk about Herod the Great in just a moment. But uh, what Joseph is, you know, uh, leaning into is that he's going to go to Egypt and he's not going to even think about coming home until he's told to. So he stayed there until the death of Herod. So he didn't go anywhere. And so there's some important things that we have to learn here uh, about what's going on in the story, that there's this obedience of Joseph that is apparent once again, just like it was the first time. It's immediate, it's urgent, he acts on it as soon as God speaks. Now at the end of this passage, uh, the end of verse uh, 15, there's this quotation of scripture um, that says, uh, so that what had been spoken through the Lord, through the prophet would be fulfilled. What prophet is that? Uh, well, that is the prophet Hosea. And so this uh, quotation, out of Egypt I have called my son, um, is a little bit, well, it's a little bit forced because the text in Hosea, if you read it in its context, it clearly is speaking about the Exodus event and Moses. Yet Matthew and the early Christians believed that Jesus, at least theologically, 
was the leader of a new Israel. And this new Israel was the community of faith that was made up of Jews and Gentiles in this new movement of the church. In some ways, Jesus is the Moses character in the story, that he will come out of Egypt, but it is through his life, death, and resurrection that Jesus will lead people to their liberation in much the same way Moses led people from their liberation of slavery. So what's important to keep in mind here is like many citations we read in the New Testament from Jewish scripture, the reference that they're making oftentimes is more analogous than literal. It's more kind of typecasting or kind of looking at ways in which patterns are similar or how previous events foreshadow events that are to come. They're just not always a straight line of connection one for another. You, it, it really becomes difficult to read these quotations in the New Testament from Jewish scripture with kind of a, a flat-footed sort of literalism. They're more analogous. We have to kind of read them in their typology and what is trying to be communicated by the writer. It opens, all this opens up a key passageway to us, especially about Joseph's behavior, and that God's call invites our obedience, not our understanding. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes just for a minute. Now, everything from the beginning of this story about Mary becoming pregnant and what he's supposed to do, the journey to Bethlehem, now they have to go to Egypt, everything has been according to God's call and purpose. And so Joseph and Mary too are living in a pattern of obedience to that. Now imagine living a life where each step moves to the next by God's call and leadership. Now we don't know how it's gonna end. We don't know what it's gonna look like when we get there. We don't know what the journey is gonna be like on the way. All we know is the next step. This is the life of a Jesus follower. This is the life of discipleship. And the question we might hold for ourselves as we look at Joseph's behavior here is do we posture ourselves for this kind of relationship with God? Now we finally turn to the last two verses of this particular text, verses 16 to 18. Now, it doesn't take Herod long to realize that he has been deceived by the Magi. The Magi are not returning. So when the Magi visited Jerusalem and spoke with Herod and the religious leaders, they said they would go find the child. And then Herod said, I want you to come back to me because Herod said, I want to go worship him as well. Well, after a period of time goes by, it becomes clear to Herod that the Magi are not coming back. And so the text tells us in verse 16 that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. It's one of the strongest ways you can write this in Greek in Matthew's gospel to talk about how enraged he actually was. Now, this was not an uncommon thing for Herod the Great. There's no historical account of this slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. So the story that we're going to read in Matthew's gospel there's no account in any history records outside of the New Testament that this event happened. But Herod's rage is quite well known. Uh, you should know Herod the Great murdered his own wife because he believed his wife was conspiring with one and then another one of his sons to usurp him from the throne. 
And so in response, not only did he murder his wife, but Herod murdered his own two sons since they were ascendant to the throne of Israel. Now keep in mind, this is all under Roman rule. So while Herod may enjoy the trappings of a monarchy, he's no true king. He lives under Roman rule. We read many stories about Herod uh, outside of the New Testament, of his enraged behavior, of his slaughter of hundreds or thousands of people, including, of course, his own wife, two of his own sons. As a matter of fact, before Herod died, when he was not close to death, but getting older, he made a decree that upon his death, that every family in Israel was to sacrifice one of their sons in his honor. This gives you some degree of the kind of disturbing state that Herod existed in. Now, anytime you take a, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, uh, Herod is going to be lifted up as this great builder and this great figure of first century Judaism. And he's credited with building some magnificent structures. Uh, the desert fortress Masada was built by Herod the Great. Herodias, which is a small little uh, mountaintop temple south of Jerusalem, was built by Herod the Great. Um, in order to uh, get the blessing of the Romans to do all of these building projects, he built a fortress for the Roman governor in Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Maritima, along the coast. And that's where, of course, later on, Pilate would live and would only visit Jerusalem when necessary. But probably the most significant building that Herod was responsible for doing construction work on was the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So he's oftentimes remembered for these great structures he built. But this is a man who lives with paranoia. His insecurity and that paranoia as a leader were well known. They were well documented. Now, here's how it intersects with this story in Bethlehem. There are most scholars estimate today that Bethlehem probably had a population at this time of a thousand people. And if the demographics of that day hold true, what we know, the, the slaughter of the male-born children under the age of two is probably around 20 children which of course is horrific, but it explains in some ways why the slaughter of the innocents isn't recorded somewhere else in Jewish or Roman history. 20 children in a small town was a blip on the radar screen of a person like Herod the Great. He had been guilty of vast slaughters of people over all the years he reigned. So 20 children in Bethlehem would have hardly registered as an event in Herod the Great's life. Why under the age of two? Well, that takes us back to what I shared at the beginning of the podcast. There's a chronology of events. It took time for the Magi to make their journey from Persia to Jerusalem. And so by killing every child under the age of two, Herod is ensuring that this child that the Magi had come and sought out would certainly be killed. So let's move on uh, from the tragic figure of Herod the Great and look at this text that Matthew quotes from the book of Jeremiah. First, he says in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. R Ramah is the a city just north of Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians 500 plus years, almost 600 years earlier, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem were taken from Jerusalem and marched to Babylon as exiles. And the first city that those exiles passed through after they had left Jerusalem 
was Ramah. So Ramah, just to the north of Jerusalem, is this city uh, known for weeping and mourning because of this tradition of the Jews leaving for their exile at Babylonian hands to the north. Then the text goes on and tells us that Rachel is weeping for her children. These are songs of lament for the innocents that were killed in Bethlehem. Rachel weeping for her children is important because she, of course, is one of Joseph's wives. And Joseph, as you um, may know, um, is um, uh, not one of Joseph's wife, one of Jacob's wives, pardon me. And so um, Jacob is uh, renamed later in his life to be the name Israel. So Rachel is one of Jacob's wives, is one of the mothers of Israel, if you uh, can imagine. And it says she weeps for her children. Well, why is she weeping for her children specifically in that case? Well, it's because her historical tomb, uh, where Rachel is buried, is located just outside the wall of the city of Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, you can go visit that tomb to this very day. You leave the walled city of Jerusalem, a wall that's been built by the Israelis, uh, that encircles the town. And once you go on the outside of the wall, just to the south, there's the tomb of Rachel. And so there's this notion of Rachel weeping for her children, even as these children in Bethlehem are being slaughtered by Herod. It's a very touching and powerful quotation from uh, Jeremiah 31, which is also the same chapter that talks about the new covenant that God is going to make with his people. There is a key passageway for us here, and it's this that our choices reveal who we are. This text is perhaps one of the most tragic in the New Testament. Herod killing would-be kings. Lazy, enraged, possessed. He displays the worst of who we are as human beings. While Herod the Great won't be successful in putting Jesus to death, one of his descendants will be successful as part of the conspiracy of putting to Jesus putting Jesus to death a little over 30 years later. Now while Herod can be celebrated for his great monuments, there's no denying the atrocity of his actions. Jesus's family become refugees in Egypt. Children are murdered. Despots rule with rage. It sounds like I just gave you a headline from today refugees, children who are slaughtered, despots who rule. All of this mirrors who we are today as human beings. Refugees, infanticide, dictators. So what we do in these moments as people of faith, how we live and function in these times, reveals so much about who we are. Because for all of Herod's great construction acts, we have to remember what a despotic and evil ruler he really was, ruthless. So we can never forget that our choices reveal who we are, and those choices and the capacity to make those choices comes from God, that every choice we make is a form of stewardship before the Lord. If you have comments, reflections at all, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com, and click on News in the upper right-hand corner, and then Podcasts will show on the drop-down menu, and then click on this episode, and feel free to leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website at ffmc.org to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect 
with our community. We have a vital online community, and we'd love for you to be a part of it by joining in our worship services or any of our other gatherings that we offer online. A special note, as uh, we conclude this podcast at the end of 2023 for uh, the Sunday that is the 31st of December, uh, this will be the uh, final episode of Passages for about four or five weeks uh, while I'm away on a medical leave. I'm going to be having a, a surgical procedure at the beginning of January, technically, brain surgery. I know some of you thought that actually might be the case for me one day. <laughs> But I'm going to be out on medical leave for a while, which means we'll have guest preachers preaching at First Free Methodist Church in Seattle. I'll be uh, recovering at home and resting. I look forward to being back in the pulpit on the first Sunday of Lent, uh, which will be February 18, and uh, passages will resume hopefully the week before that. So until then, I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again very, very soon.